Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. Support for today's episode comes from Benedictine University's Center for Values-Driven Leadership, where they offer a PhD program for senior executives who want to build strong, positive cultures that deliver exceptional performances. The unique curriculum combines academic rigor with insights you can put to work on Monday morning. Through the three-year program, you become an expert in the aspect of leadership you're most passionate about so you can have a transformative impact in your business, and on society. Find out how you can lead your company while you earn your PhD. Visit cbdl.ben.edu slash doctorate for more information or Google PhD Values Leadership. That's PhD Values Leadership. My guest today is Chris Maynard. Chris is the founder and CEO of its Essential Ingredients. His favorite thing about Essential Ingredients is to help shape a work environment that provides a pathway for employees to utilize their giftedness. I really want to talk about that. His company was chosen as a Forbes small giant in 2017, and he has a great story about how he converted the ownership structure of the company into an ESOP. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Paul. Good to be here. Well, first, let's just talk about what Essential Ingredients is. I know you guys kind of make stuff that goes in other stuff that we might have in our house, but why don't you share, uh, do, it a, do a better job than I just did? Yeah, a lot of people hear the name Essential Ingredients, and for years, uh, they've, they've asked me, what kind of food ingredients are you in? And <clears throat> interestingly enough, we're not in food ingredients just yet, and we hope to be there someday, but uh, really what we do is we're a chemical distribution company that sells ingredients to primarily folks who make personal care products. So shampoos, lotions, cosmetics, uh, toothpaste, mouthwash, the types of things you probably used, hopefully, uh, three or four <laughs> times today as you were getting ready uh, to go to work. So um, we also provide some of those same types of services to folks in what we would call the household and industrial cleaner market. So instead of cleaning you as a person, it's cleaning uh, your car or your floor or your windows, those types of things. And uh, what's give me a scope of the size of the company, you know, revenues, employees, that kind of thing. Yeah, so we uh, we finished 2018 right at about 114 million in sales and revenue. So our target for uh, this this year that we're in now is uh, 127. We've got 84 folks currently on our team. We've been adding uh, quite a few folks over the last few years as we've grown and expanded uh, nationally uh, and and looking internationally now actually doing business in all the lower 48 states uh, with distribution centers, five, five scattered around the country, uh, headquartered here in Atlanta, Georgia. So how, how is your workforce split up uh, from the sort of technical chemical side of it versus sales? Yeah, so really we're a we're a sales organization. I sell we say I say we sell relationships, not chemicals. So uh, mm-hmm. we really focus on the people side of the business in terms of uh, building and forging relationships, not only with one another, uh, which is extremely uh, critical, but also with um, our two primary constituents outside our customers and our suppliers, you know, who we contract and have geographical representation responsibilities for. So. Um, you know, we've got about 20 full-time sales reps uh, scattered around the country. 
We've got, uh, you know, a host of support folks here internally, uh, customer service, uh, of course, uh, laboratory technicians standing by to help our customers formulate uh, finished products if they need our assistance. And then, um, of course, our own warehouse here in the Atlanta area supported by additional warehouses around the country, which are third party. So it's uh, it's it's. A distributor, um, you know, we're the middle guy, so you got to have all those services uh, down pat. I often describe our business as the oil filter in your car. You know, we've got these great relationships with suppliers upstream who make chemicals really well, but they don't execute, you know, on the delivery side very well. So our job as the filter is to filter all that noise out and make sure our customers get uh, tremendous service, you know, when they get the product from us. It sounds to me like the business could easily be commoditized in, in terms of what you do, and, and you're also a sales organization, which isn't necessarily always associated with a, a culture-focused business because they're just grinding to make money or whatever they're doing, and, and you've got a big group out there. How have you managed to build a company that is actually based on relationships? Well, I think, uh, interestingly enough, and we're, we're, we live currently in a very consolidative environment uh, in chemical distribution. Many of our, our peers, smaller, uh, smaller firms, have been purchased by really a handful of global, uh, global conglomerates, multi-billion-dollar organizations. And, and in, in fact, you're right. I mean, at that level, it is very much a commoditized business. Uh, it's about price. It's about capabilities, logistical capabilities in particular. And uh, when we, when I spend time with our customers and I talk to them about what do you appreciate about essential ingredients, it's it's really the warm uh, relationships that we bring to bear uh, on top of, you know, not only that, but our expertise uh, being a smaller, more nimble firm. So, you know, continuing to, to reemphasize that with our people as we grow uh, the importance of these relationships, uh, not only with our customers and our suppliers, but even with one another, yeah, making sure this is a great place to work. All those things seem to echo, uh, you know, in the in the as we have outside contacts. I often talk about and paint the picture of of inviting folks into our tent. Most people out there work for companies that uh, they they go to work every day, and it's really just a job. And if we can invite them into our tent and, and, and show them a picture of what work can really look like in terms of enjoying where you go every day, enjoying the people you work with, it's very, very refreshing and it's, and it's quite magnetic. Sure is. Well, can you have, give me an example of how, how you do that in terms of building that great workforce? You also have a lot of people all over the place, so you're not all sitting in the same place. How have you managed to, to, to do that over the years? Well, a big part of it is... Uh, is clarity. Uh, you know, we often talk about, you know, understanding where we're going as an organization. Uh, so that, we, that to get clarity, you've got to have lots of room for communication. Uh, so we have lots of huddles every, every week on a Monday. If you, if you came in our office at 11 a.m., you'd see us all gathered around a TV screen uh, where our remote uh, workforce is out there and they're, they're involved in the, in the meeting via webcast. Uh, every, uh, every employee here is gathered around and we for 20 minutes, we'll give an update on where we are and what's going on with the company. So um, that's a chance for us to review the scoreboard financially. We're an open book company, so it's one of the tools that we use in order to make sure we've got uh, clarity. And then the second thing is alignment, um, You know, making sure that everybody understands uh, where we're going now, how we're going to get there. So having a great leadership team uh, who executes on all that and echoes the communication throughout the week, has their own huddles with their own departments, uh, yeah, those are tools that I've learned you must have in order to uh, to maintain that level of intimacy. Uh, I think you started the company, was it early 90s? 1996, actually. Okay. And, 
Yeah, it was co-founded uh, by myself and another Chris um, and uh, uh, in 1996 in a little uh, incubator in Augusta, Georgia. We couldn't afford a real office in the incubator, so we ended up rent- renting the, uh, the server closet room for $125 a month, uh, which was just big enough for a desk and a sample shelf. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, both of us uh, had two brand-new baby girls at home, uh, quit our jobs, and... and uh, you know, I had to go out and get a couple of used cars because we had company cars in the places we uh, we had just left, and uh, a couple of Skytel pagers, and off we went. So it was a pretty rough start. That bootstrapped approach, like uh, many of us can relate to. Let me take you back uh, uh, to what got this all started, and um, maybe even as far back as your childhood. I mean, you've now running a a company that's going to do 120 million this year. That's pretty impressive. And you're certainly making an impact with your customers and your employees. Uh, so that came from somewhere. Uh, talk about your childhood growing up, maybe your folks, um, some early influences you had. Yeah. I mean, I grew up, um, you know, in a very modest, uh, you know, home in, in rural Ohio as a farming community. Um, you know, my dad was, uh, in sales all his life and actually still is, um, you know, and so I got to watch him get up every day and go to work. And he was, he traveled quite a bit for business. Um, you know, I had two brothers, uh, you know, we grew up in a three bedroom house with one bathroom. My poor mother had to share a bathroom with four, four guys. <laughs> um, but, um, again, very modest, but I, I, I think gr- uh, there's something about the Midwestern work ethic that we often hear about. That's a very real, uh, thing. So when I talk to other Midwesterners, um, it's, it's like going home. Um, you know, you, uh, you're in a farming community, so everybody pitches in to help one another. And it's, um, uh, you know, back, back when I was growing up there in the late seventies and early eighties, you know, we didn't have a lot of the distractions that I think a lot of our younger people dated to do have today mm-hmm. you know, with electronic devices and things. So, um, you know, we found a lot of our joy just outside working. So, um, you know, both my grandfathers were factory workers and, um, uh, you know, watching them, uh, um, you know, get up and go to work every day too. And, and really for very, uh, meager, uh, wages and watching how they live their lives, um, you know, paying cash for everything instead of, uh, you know, living off of credit and piling up debts. Um, those were just early lessons that I remember, um, that, that I didn't think at the time were impactful, but, you know, reflecting back on those things now were, were quite impactful. Any, uh, early jobs that impacted your, uh, leadership skills? Yeah, I, uh, I, boy, it seems like I have, have, have had every job in the book. Um, you know, one of my earlier jobs was, uh, managing a concession stand at a state park, uh, that, uh, uh, that I lived, uh, that I lived nearby. So, um, you know, that was buying the supplies and, uh, working the counter and, and flipping burgers. Um, uh, so that, that created a little bit of the entrepreneur in me, I believe. Um, it also, gave me a taste that I didn't want to deal with the public and I wanted to, you know, <laughs> be in some kind of distribution uh, business or something if I ever ended up that way. But uh, I, I told my wife when, uh, you know, we were going to get married that the last thing I wanted to do was uh, end up in sales. And uh, that was exactly where I ended up was ended up in chemical sales. So um, I had a number of jobs in between there that, that uh, sometimes it's easier to find out what you don't want to do instead of what you do want to do. And so I found out a lot of those, um, everything from, uh, being a chimney sweep and repairman to, uh, of course, delivering pizzas and working for a collections agency. And, um, uh, you know, I finally found my niche when I got a lucky break with a, with a chemical company in Chicago that offered me a shot at sales and, uh, ended up being what I was, what I was really good at. 
So that was just another job along the way that you got that happened to be in the chemical industry? Well, that was my first real job, I would say. You know, um, I had, uh, interestingly enough, I had spent a year, about uh, a semester, about six months in Russia uh, on a missions trip, and I came back from that. I had just graduated, um, came back from that, um, uh, met the gal who would become my wife, uh, Cindy, who's been my wife now for 27 years, um, and we wanted to get married. And her father, of course, when I went to ask for her hand in marriage, said, you need to get a, a real job. Um, <laughs> so I found myself looking for a real job instead of just one of these, uh, uh, you know, fly-by-night deals. I got invited to come up and interview with this uh, this company in Chicago that was looking for really uh, – I was a pre-med major in, in uh, college. And they wanted uh, folks with a technical background who could absorb technical issues and think scientifically. So um, – it was off cycle. I don't think I would have ever gotten the interview otherwise. They uh, they had me come up and spend a, a full day with them interviewing with eight different people that day from uh, lab technicians all the way up to the vice president of sales. And they called me about a week later and offered me a job, you know, with more than I had ever expected. And uh, not too long after that, Cindy and I got married and moved to Chicago. So now did you meet her on the trip? Uh, we were friends in college. I actually went on the trip together and uh, fell in love in Russia, just like the uh, movie from Russia with Love. And uh-huh. uh, uh, that wasn't supposed to happen, but it did. And uh, it's been great. So 27 years. Congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. So uh, what about school? Where did you where did you go to college? And, and uh, you said you were pre-med. So was there was there uh, was there going to be a doctor in the house at some point? Well, that was what my uh, my father wanted, I think. Um, yeah, I was. I went to Miami of Ohio and uh, just a little town called Oxford, Ohio, and uh, you know enjoyed those years very, very much. Um, uh, struggled through, uh, you know, pre med school, and you know, I just uh, I, I, I mounted up quite a bit of college debt going through school on my own, and the idea of of enduring additional piles of debt, uh, you know, as you go into medical school. And plus, my grades weren't quite what they would have needed to be, uh, I don't think, to to uh, close the gap. So, um, you know, it became pretty clear that that wasn't my path. And uh, but the path that was given to me was was totally very unusual and different than what I'd ever expected. But it uh, certainly worked out. Yeah, I had my path uh, got interrupted just the same way. And it, it, it was in my first quarter at UCLA getting a, a D in calculus and a C in chemistry. So uh, I, I was done. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, so can you think back in, in those years that maybe, Chris, of an unexpected learning from an unexpected source? Um, yeah, I mean, I think yeah, yeah, I think I mentioned one of my grandfathers, you know, early in the conversation. But I, um, you know, one of the things I learned early on was just the power of, uh, of uh, integrity and honesty from him. Um it's kind of a silly story, but one I'll never forget. Um, I remember he and I uh, were riding around in his 1977 El Camino. Uh, we had to go run errands one day. I think I was probably 10 or 12 years old. Um, and that El Camino I've got today sitting in my garage, by no. the way, with 63,000 mile, original miles on it. Um, <clears throat> but uh, we're out running errands, and he says, well, you know, we need to get the car cleaned, so we'll go to the car wash. And um, so we go into one of these self-service drive through car wash deals where you get out and you've got the wand and the brush the wand and um so we get out and he starts to pay but he realizes the car wash itself is running it's you didn't need to pay for it to work right you just it just worked and um so we go ahead and wash the car and then um we ended up driving around for like 35 minutes you know after that to find the guy 
that owned the car wash so we could pay him this the 50 cents or 75 cents. I can't remember what the what the money was so that my grandfather wasn't going to quote unquote steal a car wash from this guy. And I'll, I'll just never forget, you know, that most of us would probably just, you know, move right past that and not think a thing about it. Um, but he wasn't going to let that go. And it struck me and it still strikes me today and gives me chills as I tell the story about the lesson of integrity and honesty that came with, um, uh, with that. Mine is so similar when, um, they, those newspaper, uh, things where you can lift up and you take a newspaper out. And back then it was, I think a dime to get the newspaper. And I pulled two out of there and my parents were quite upset with me and, 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 made me go ahead and put more money in to put the first one back. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and you know, again, that just easily came to mind when you told that story. And I think we all have stories like that, but they're so important and so simple about the, the importance of just basic integrity and honesty uh, in life. So un- unfortunately, I think I have a few more stories like that. So it maybe took me a while to figure it out. Uh, that's a great, a great story. Um, you know, uh, talk, let's kind of get back to what's happened with essential ingredients. Talk about, you know, how your culture created this opportunity for you to really look at the ownership structure. I know you started with the other Chris, uh, eventually a number of years ago, you converted to an ESOP. Why did you do that? And what has that journey been like? Yeah. I mean, for us, it was, um, uh, there was really, uh, it was me and Chris, and we had a third partner at the time that came in a little bit later. Um, and for us, as we, uh, you know, we entered really still pretty young guys. I mean, we're in our forties, but we're trying to figure out, you know, what are we going to do with this business, uh, longer term? You know, we, we, we've started exploring different avenues for that. Uh, the thing that, that, uh, we had observed that was sort of depressing, I guess, in some ways is that we had seen a number of our, our, our peers, you know, sell to some larger competitors or private equity firms, these sorts of things. And, uh, you know, what happened to the culture and the people that, that had really helped build the business, um, uh, you know, they were sort of just uh, collateral damage, you know, at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And and that was something that uh, we just knew we didn't want uh, to see happen um, to not only the, the culture we built, but more importantly, the people that had helped us build it. So, um, uh, so as we started exploring, uh, you know, options for sort of, you know, how do we get out of this thing? Uh, how do mm-hmm. we unravel or unwind ourselves from this? Um, uh, you know, ESOP became just uh, uh, something I studied and learned about. We had a supplier that had been a, uh, it was an ESOP and still is, um, uh, and they coached me up some on the on the concept, and I um, studied that along with a few of our uh, other folks here, and we decided that was the path we were going to be on. So, uh, you know, one of the one of the most fun moments in my career was uh, when we announced that, and it was really. Uh, I had invited the entire organization in around the the guise of a 15 year anniversary. This is 2011, and uh, you know I get up in front of the company and I'm I'm uh, they're all sitting there with bated breath waiting mm-hmm. for words of wisdom from their fearless leader. And um, you know I'm talking to them about you know there comes a time in business when everything's got to change. And um, you know uh, I said today we we I'm here to tell you we we sold the company. And um, of course there was this gasped yeah, in yeah. the room. Right. And I said, uh, I said, yeah, I, in fact, I said the newer owners of essential ingredients are here in the room with us, uh, tonight. And I'd, I'd like to introduce them to you. And, um, had a few folks in the back of the room who were dressed in suits and had kind of helped us as consultants and attorneys and such, uh, to get us to this point. And I said, well, the new owners of essential ingredients, please stand up. And 
you know, a couple of guys in the back are looking, everybody's looking at each other. And I looked down in the front row and one of our warehousemen was sitting there and I, I said, Kevin, would you mind please standing up for me? And I said, Kevin, how long have you been with the company? And he, and he said, how long you've been there? And I said, would you mind remain standing, please? And I looked across the room and there was our receptionist, uh, Joy, who was there. And I said, Joy, would you please stand up? How long have you been with the company? Same story. And I had about 10 people standing up. And I said, would you please all stand up and uh, let me introduce you now to the new owners of Essential Ingredients. And that's all of you. And um, and then we spent the next, you know, really full day, uh, you know, with this this uh, group of consultants who had come in to help us uh, sort of uh, educate folks on what an ESOP is and what does it mean to them and the why behind why we had done it. You know, instead of selling to a competitor, a private equity firm or, you know, some kind of venture cap um, we had taken this approach. So it was a great moment. God, I got chills when you told that story. I remember talking to you about converting to the ESOP and and wondering as we look at various ways to incentivize behavior in our companies, did that uh, ownership mentality quickly and immediately transfer to all the employees where they acted like owners uh, once you got past the initial announcement? Did it really change the culture or did it take some time for people to make a connection between the change in the ownership structure and uh, how they worked on a day in day out basis? Yeah, no, it, it certainly wasn't quick. I, um, in fact, I think I found myself frustrated that, um, you know, uh, it didn't happen more quickly. And then what I learned, uh, really, and it, it took several years for, for me to learn why and then to implement some new tools and practices. Uh, you know, it, the fact is we were already culturally, we were kind of like an ESOP and we, we, we treated one another well and uh, we had a profit sharing program. We shared the results and the, um, you know, with our folks, uh, but they really didn't understand how the business worked. Mm-hmm. And one of the, one of the, uh, one of the uh, the key uh, tools that I picked up over the years was, you know, Jack Stack's great, great game of business. And, you know, to me, that has become one of the most powerful tools that we use here today, um, you know, utilizing open book management style in order to educate first your folks on how, the, how, the, how do we make money? How do we lose money? Uh, how, do, how does your job play a role in that? And then um, incentivizing and rewarding folks, you know, the entire team on the same uh, you know, on the same goals for the year. So, uh, again, we're back to clarity and alignment, um, you know, in this case on results. So if we know the target, uh, we know how we're going to hit it and everybody's, you know, shooting at the same target, we should, uh, you know, we, we should be able to get there. And that's a powerful thing when you get 84 people all marching in the same direction. And what would you tell to other, uh, business owners that are considering, uh, ESOP as a strategy, uh, kind of things to, to be aware of or look out for? You know, it's, it, you learn something new every day about ESOPs. You know, I, I remember, uh, you know, being a year into the ESOP and thinking, wow, I, there, something new popped up. We're like, I didn't know that. Um, so they're, they're, they're complex, I would say, is one thing. And I don't, you know, I don't want to scare anyway, one away with that. Um, it's, it's, it can be expensive to implement. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, it, uh, you know, if you're looking for a succession strategy that you want to preserve your, your uh, culture, um, you want to uh, be able to have a hand in the success so even longer term, and you want your folks to, uh, you know, to be able to enjoy that for decades potentially. Uh, you know, NEC is a great tool to do that. Um, if you're looking for uh, the maximum amount of return you're going to get from the sale of your business, it's probably not likely ESOP. Um, there's got to be some other reasons you want to do ESOP. Again, more culturally related reasons. Um, but if um, 
if that is uh, that resonates, uh, you know, with a with a leader out there, then uh, ESOP is a is a fantastic tool. I think that is underutilized and a great way to preserve company culture and provide great jobs for people for for decades. When you're looking at your business today and uh, you think about the growth trajectory you're on, scaling the culture that you have, you've already got this, the ESOP had now in place for a number of years. What would you say are your biggest current challenges? Well, um, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we, we, the competitors that we go toe to toe with every day out there are multi-billion dollar organizations. Um, you know, we're not going to win with them if we compete on, uh, uh, you know, in terms of cash or logistics, uh, the way we win is inviting them to our court, you know, where it's really about, uh, this relationship side of the business. So, um, good news is, um, you know, most of the people who go to work at those big companies every day, they, they just, they're trying to fly under the radar. It's, you know, it's kind of a CYA, uh, mentality and, um, they're not uh, they're not really totally bought in to what that company's trying to get done i think um and that's our secret weapon you know we've got people who are extremely passionate about the business extremely passionate about uh, caring for our customers and our suppliers and, and each other my job is to continue to remind our folks that you know we don't sell chemicals we sell relationships uh and anything we can do to make ourselves more sticky uh with our uh, with our constituents just adds fuel to the fire so um, it's easy to get caught up, I think, often in the in the sort of the tactical things uh, for our folks every day. But um, you know, I, my job, I think, is to take them for helicopter rides. Is one of the terms that I use. You know, to fly them up above the tree line occasionally and uh, give them a better view of where we're going and the the lay of the the land ahead. And I think it's refreshing to them and uh, empowering. Well, it's very inspirational as well, and and uh, yet, uh, lest anybody think that this is easy, there are times when I'm sure you have to make really tough decisions. Can you think of a decision you you had to make one day that was really humbling for you? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, you know, I've got, uh, as much as I'm a change agent, you know, here, uh, you know, as a leader at EI, I've always got to be looking for sort of the next big thing. Uh, one of my Achilles heels, I guess, you know, and any strength overplayed is a weakness, right? Um, you know, I've got a tremendous uh, sense for, of loyalty uh, uh, to people and even institutions. Um, you know, so on, on several occasions, we've had to terminate supplier relationships, uh, for example, uh, where suppliers weren't meeting our expectations, where, um, you know, we're trying to build a reputation on reliability and um you know, if a supplier for some reason, uh, and we've had several of these examples over the years where um, I've had to have very hard conversations with them about their uh, their lack of attention to detail, and uh, which is compromising our reputation, and we've had to, you know, walk away. Uh, so those walk away points are not only uh, painful relationally, but painful to the pocketbook too, as you you know walk away from. Um, you know, potentially millions of dollars uh, of revenue and a lot of gross profit to the bottom line in order to do the right thing for the organization longer term. So uh, those are tough calls and uh, ones I don't relish, but um, I've had to do a few times. Yeah. is As you think about your own leadership style today, is there a particular area that, that you feel that you could continue to improve on? Uh, I'm sure there's lots of those. Um, you know, my um, my style is, is very collaborative. Um, you know, so I, 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 I do my, my best when I, uh, you know, when I'm a, a bit of a free thinker and I can bounce ideas around, uh, we spent a lot of time in the last few years developing a very robust uh, leadership team here. Um, 
as I've thought about, you know, this organization longer term, uh, one of the things that we really need is is, is continuing to develop strong leaders like any good organization. Um, we hadn't really paid a lot of attention to that historically, and uh, I feel really well backed now by this uh, leadership team. So, um, you know, that's 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 helped me a lot. Um, I think in terms of, you know, continued areas of improvement, uh, you know, communication is uh, you think you're good at it until you're not. And uh, um, it's it's surprising to me that uh, as, as much as I try to communicate well and clearly uh, that oftentimes I don't and I fail at it. So to me, that's an area of obvious uh, continued improvement for me. Um, I think one of the things that I found as, as a leader is I'll get something in my head and I'll think about it you know, for weeks and potentially months, um, uh, you know, sleepless nights, et cetera. And I marinate this idea until it's somewhat perfected on my head. And when I spring it on somebody or the organization, um, I've got this, uh, unknowing expectation that they're going to accept and adopt the, uh, <laughs> the concept pretty quickly, but you know, I've, I've only given them five minutes to digest it and I've had six months. Right. So, uh, that's one of the hard lessons I've learned is, uh, you know, let these things marinate and take time with your organization, not just yourself. Yeah. And uh, you've benefited from building out that management team over the last number of years too. And and that's part of realizing that uh, we only know so much and we're only good at certain things. And until we start surrounding ourselves with really smart, talented people, uh, we're going to limit our ability to grow the company. And uh, it sounds like you really have done that with your leadership team. Um, you're you're on a on, on a great track, Chris. There's uh, so much more to come. I know for you and essential ingredients. Uh, if you were to be speaking to uh, somebody younger, maybe starting out in their career, what kind of advice would you give them? Yeah, I, I think one of the things I would I would talk to them. Uh, you know, I think in our younger years, um, you know, uh, I think most of us. We're trying to make a mark, you know, on the world, trying to make a name for ourselves, these types of things. And, um, you know, I would emphasize the uh, the power of clarity and alignment. Again, I've mentioned that a few times, but, you know, as you build a team, um, you know, it, it's it, it's not all about you. It's really about you know, the whole and the team. And uh, to, to the way the quickest way to get there is is to clearly state uh, sort of the needs and where you're going and then getting alignment of everybody, getting the right talent, getting uh, the right folks and getting them uh, heading the right direction. Uh, then that's those two things, you know, when well aligned, whether you're looking at a great uh, sports team, a football team, basketball team, or an organization, those are, uh, that's what defines the winners and losers. Yeah, that's right. Is the other Chris still involved in the business? Uh, no, he's retired from the business. He does sit on our board of directors. Um, so I get to see him at least once a quarter, if not more. And we're, we're still tremendous friends. Um, you know, some other things called him away. So, um, uh, but he's, he's close by. That's good. And, and, uh, what, what is your personal future? You know, uh, you've got the ownership structure in place. Uh, you know, what's, what's your next five, 10 years look like? Yeah, I think, uh, certainly five years out, I'm still, you know, here continuing to develop, uh, you know, our next layer of, of leaders and, um, you know, ensuring that our culture, uh, you know, can withstand the storms of the future. Um, I'm on this, this hundred year path, you know, I'm, I'm really passionate about this idea of, of creating a hundred year company. Uh, so I want to make sure before I, uh, you know, take a, a big step outside that, uh, you know, we've got those things well entrenched in the, in the DNA of the organization. Uh, beyond that, um, 
I love the idea of, of thinking about dialing back some of my energy here at uh, Essential Ingredients, you know, maybe still uh, having a toe dipped in the water as a uh, as a chairman of the board or something like that role. Uh, but uh, I'd love to see the idea of, of uh, spending time with other uh, younger leaders, other uh, CEOs, and talking to them about some of my experiences and seeing if I can be of assistance to them too, either in a board role or uh, some kind of a coaching role. Yeah, that sounds like a, a perfect transition for you. Uh, uh, congratulations on all of your success, uh, and less about the financial side, uh, more about just the impact that you've you've had and continue to have on people, whether they're your own employees or uh, just the really special relationships you built with your customers, your suppliers. I mean, clearly you're in the relationship business, which all of us are in, and you were someone that realized that early on. Uh, let me conclude with these five uh, quick hit questions. Uh, just just like the association game, just kind of the first thing that comes to your mind. Can you name a leader that you look up to? Uh, yeah, I got lots of leaders I look up to. I mean, Jack Stack's, uh, you know, a great, uh, been a great influencer and a friend for me the last uh, few years. Um, I really admire what he's done in his organization. And um, as, as uh, I think uh, the EI path uh, is, is we're, we're quite a few steps behind them, but this idea of creating multiple businesses under one head uh, in order to mitigate risk and create more jobs for more people is something I'm really passionate about. So I admire Jack's leadership in that. And um you know, he's given me a lot of things to think about. So kudos to Jack. Yeah, he's a great example. How about a great book that influenced your leadership style? Uh, you know, one of the one of the earlier books that I read that uh, continues, I just, in fact, I just went back like two weeks ago and reread it, Good to Great. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the Jim Collins uh, book, uh, you know, talking about, again, clarity. And um, I was uh, trying to refresh my memory on hedgehog concept and um, doing some more refinement on that for us here at, at EI. And as I was rereading it, it struck me once all over again, you know, what a, what a, what a foundational and great book that was for me at the time. And, uh, you know, it's refreshing every time I go back and glance at it. So, um, uh, you know, the idea of, of, of getting the right folks on the bus, um, you know, what, what uh, level five leadership leaks like and those sorts of things, uh, very impactful to me. That's a timeless book, just uh, wonderful, and, and a good lesson for others to, uh, when you have those books that have meant something, go back, read them again. You're going to get even more out of them. Uh, how about your favorite all-time movie? Favorite all-time movie, that's a long list, too. Um, you know, I love uh, I love uh, Forrest Gump is a great one for mm-hmm. me. You know, how the... Uh, you know, how someone from simple means who focuses on things that really matter, relationships, loyalty, friendship, um, you know, and, uh, you know, how some of those uh, those those folks who uh, seem under the radar can have very influential relationships. So um, Shawshank Redemption is another favorite of mine, just a, kind of a, a great redemption story there. And then uh, if I'm, I'm kind of a Western fan, a, a Clint Eastwood guy, so the outlaw Josie Wells is one mm-hmm. that always, uh, you know, I like the good guy to win and justice to be uh, served. So those are all good. Uh, Shawshank is the number one movie I get uh, as a response to this question on, which is really interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. Uh, How about, do you have a favorite TV series you'd like to binge watch? You know, we got rid of uh, TV in our house a number of years ago. We do have Netflix and Amazon and those sorts of things like everybody else, I think. So, um, um, you know, if if the if the, my boys are in the house, um, we'll. Uh, I hate to admit it, we'll watch The Walking Dead. Um, you know, if it's uh, if it's me and my wife, it's um, and and I'm not into some sort of an English drama that she's watching. Uh, you know, we'll watch something like 
oh, Madam Secretary or something like that, but nothing. Uh, we don't we don't watch a lot of TV. Yeah. Uh, well, those are two good ones. And uh, lastly, what's something about you that many people don't know? Um, you know, I'm a, I'm I'm a I'm a pretty simple guy. I you know we um, we're pretty simple folks. I I love to be in the woods. I love to backpack. Uh, you know, hike. Um, in fact, uh, my wife and I, as we think about some of our uh, years ahead, uh, this past fall we bought a we bought the smallest airstream they offer. It's a 16 footer, <laughs> and uh, we want to travel around the country and visit all the state parks. And uh, that's one of the things we want to do in our in our grayer years, I guess. Uh, hopefully, with a grandkid or two in tow at some point, which we don't have any of those yet. But um, uh, so it's you know. Um, I love to hunt. I love to fish, and uh, I love to be out. I love to be outside. So um, I don't know if that's something they don't know about me, but there you go. That's right. Well, you'll have <laughs> lots of great memories that, uh, in that airstream, and uh, I just booked a trip with my 13-year-old son to go to the Tetons and rent a, a like a Sprinter, a little uh, Sprinter van sure. to uh, go for three or four days, and we have never done anything like that before. So I'll get a taste of that life that you probably have known well uh, growing up. Um, but uh, uh, Chris, this has been great just to hear the behind-the-scenes story. I want to share a couple of reflections that I had, things that, that you said. Uh, first, that you said we sell relationships, not chemicals. And uh, I just wish every company could adapt the same thing and replace the word chemicals with whatever product or service it is that they have. Because I, I always talk about the fact that we're in the relationship business and it sounds like that's been foundational for not just the way you operate, but how you message uh, with your team. And uh, uh, you had a lot of great quote, you know, quotable uh, things here, inviting folks into your tent Right. What's important about clarity and alignment and that if you're going to have clarity and alignment, that that necessitates great communication, uh, whether it's open book financials or just the simply huddles that you have every day, connecting people that are remote, all the basic things you have to know. How do I know what my job is, how I connect to the bigger mission, vision or values of the company uh, if and have clarity about that if I don't have communication uh, I love the story about, you know, your dad being in sales uh, his whole life, um, how your mom had to share the bathroom with uh, your dad and you, you and your brothers. I can't imagine that. I had two brothers as well growing up, so uh, but my mom didn't have to do that. Uh, the Midwestern work ethic, I think, is just exists, and, and you exemplify that. Uh, you know, you got... Uh, for whatever reason, um, you know, maybe your, your wife's uh, dad who said, you know, go get a real job, you end up in, in a sales job and you didn't really want to be in sales, but you jumped in. Uh, it was in the chemical industry and look what you have done as a result of that. Uh, I love how, you know, uh, fell in love in Russia kind of on that mission trip. So while you were making the world a better place, you were uh, finding the love of your life and, and that's great. Um, your story of your grandfather and, and uh, just a basic uh, lesson of integrity and honesty that came with making sure that that car wash was paid for, whether you uh, needed to or not. Um, when you talked about taking your employees for helicopter rides, I love that. Just this view from above is, and it's something that we all struggle to do on a day-to-day basis as we're just fighting fires or trying to deal with the realities of business or, or life. And if you can step away and look from above and uh, at the bigger picture, that's really important to, to start to do um, and to stop to do. Uh, any strength is overplayed. That's overplayed as a weakness. 
And uh, sometimes we can be loyal to a fault and meaning that we hang on too long, whether it's a customer relationship or an employee that maybe is even contributing to the business, but also contributing to the, a, a negative influence in our, in our culture. And sometimes we have to make those uh, tough decisions. You've, you've talked about how just in the most recent years, having been in business for a long time, you've realized the power of next the next generation of leaders, uh, that you really are going to have to surround yourselves with those leaders to create not only succession, but the ability to help the company grow. And lastly, uh, the simple message for younger people that it's, it's not about you. It, it's about being humble and realize where you fit into the bigger picture and that you're part of, of a bigger team. Uh, so it's just so much to, to learn from you. And, and as you said early on, we didn't, we didn't go to school for this. Uh, things just happened along the way. We continue to learn, uh, but uh, really appreciate hearing your story and, and having you spend time with us today, Chris. Thanks so much. Uh, it's been my pleasure, and thank you, Paul, for all you're doing, uh, even in uh, putting these kinds of stories out there. So uh, great series, great podcast, and um, uh, don't underestimate the power of your work, too. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for joining me on this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please support the show by subscribing to hear future episodes. Until next time. Until next time.